This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is the start of a brand new week, ladies and gentlemen, and I've got some news for you because that's what we do here uh, at uh, Talk Radio. We actually bring you the news. There are some people who don't bring you the news. Uh, I wouldn't bother paying any attention to them because if you haven't got any news, you can't really call yourself a news operation, can you? We've got news and I've got news for you and here it is. I'm feeling rather positive today. Forget the doom mongers and the naysayers who reckon the government is plotting to bring in vaccine passports when nobody is looking. Forget the negativists who tell you that it's all a clever plot to entrap us and make us feel like we have won a small victory. Instead, here's what you should be doing. Rejoice and bask in the glow of a victory that is hard fought and most definitely well deserved. Because yes, indeed, the decision to ditch vaccine passports, as announced yesterday uh, by the government, is most definitely down to us here at Talk Radio and to you, the public, who have made it very clear that we are not interested in having a two-tier society, that we will not be cowed into showing proof of some kind of medical procedure in order to go and watch the new Abitur. Not interested. We're not doing it. No, thank you very much indeed. It's the beginning of the end for the government's draconian policies and the start of a slippery slope for Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. If he really wants to stay in Downing Street longer than Margaret Thatcher did, as it was suggested this weekend, he's going to have to start doing things that are popular and he's going to have to start listening to the people who put him where he is. Let's face it, if it wasn't for all of you good people voting for Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party, they would not have a big 80-seat majority. They would not be able to roll out policies that they think we need when in fact they should be rolling out policies that we know we want. That's the difference. This morning, we'll be seeking the Council of Anne Widdicombe, former Conservative MP, former Tory Minister, of course, and Brexit Party MEP, on all manner of things, from Afghan refugees to illegal migrants, and all the way through to the Boris tax to save the NHS. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. Are you back at work? Are your children being tested at school? Is your local doctor actually turning up in the surgery? 03444991000. We'll be revelling in victory as well after Emma Raducanu fired her way to the top of the tennis super charts with a win at the US Open this weekend. What a fantastic representation of the new Britain. And how pathetic was it that people were starting to be critical of those who were supporting her on the basis that she was an immigrant? I mean, really? Do grow up, people, will you, for heaven's sake. Peter Hitchens is also here for the Mail on Sunday with his take on why he should never have trusted the Tories in the first place. And we'll be checking in with Lisa Francesca Nand, who's got the latest from the travel desk on PCR tests, which apparently might be getting ditched, and why red list quarantine might have become a breach of human rights. 03444991000. Donald McLeod's here as well from Scotland with his take on the vaccine passports problem. Not any longer coming to England, but don't worry, Nicola Sturgeon thinks she wants to bring them in north of the border. Let's see how that goes, shall we? 03444991000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome to the start of another brilliant week here at Talk Radio. We've got lots going on, including, of course, the introduction of Jeremy Carl this afternoon at four o'clock, who's sitting in uh, at the new drive time slot from four until seven every day, Monday to Thursday. We can bring you all sorts of breaking news throughout the course of this show, and we will do so. Uh, We'll be talking an awful lot about vaccine passports, about whether uh, or not this is the beginning of the government beginning to see sense. But let's start off with a woman who speaks an awful lot of sense, writes it as well in the Daily Express. She is, of course, uh, the redoubtable Ms. Anne Widdicombe. Anne, a very good morning to you. Morning to you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I'm not quite sure where to start, really, but how about we start with the glorious victory uh, by Emma Raducanu, which, whenever it happens like this, you feel as though Britain is suddenly straddling the world uh, with, a, with a huge trophy. It's always a great feeling, isn't it? Yes, it's absolutely fantastic. But I think the, the big achievement here is, is not just the record-breaking and the brilliant tennis but it's also, if you remember, uh, when she left Wimbledon, uh, clutching her stomach and having difficulty to breathe, all oh, the snooty comment that there was about how, well, you know, this was the difference with the real professionals and, you know, and she wasn't up to it, blah, blah, blah. And now, let anybody dare say that. I mean, it is terrific. And I think, therefore, it's an inspiration on another level as well, which is simply to say to people, with enough determination, no setback, is ever irreversible. 
Right. And in fact, quite the reverse. Um, any setback is welcome in some ways, because I'm sure as you and I would be able to attest, Anne, you know, sometimes failing at something is a requirement of being successful. Uh, absolutely. But it doesn't always feel like that at the time. No, no, it certainly doesn't. But listen, uh, let's talk about success. I mean, I'm very happy this morning to be able to announce that vaccine passports are not going to be brought in. Some people think it's a bit of a ruse and it's going to be coming in sometime later. I think, though, this is a Tory government that doesn't like to be unpopular. I think they've realised that this was a very unpopular policy and they've reversed it. I think, to be fair, I don't think they were ever desperately keen on it, but mm. I think they were being driven in that direction. I think Boris is not keen on the idea that if you uh, arrive at an event in this country, that you've got to show your papers. We don't show our papers in this country. As a matter of fact, I am in favour of national identity cards. But this was something completely different. Uh, This was about proving that you'd had a particular medical procedure. Well, we're a free country. You are free to refuse a particular medical procedure. Uh, So um, I, I don't think they were ever terribly keen on it, but I do think that they were being driven that way. Uh, and that there was a very serious possibility that it might happen. Uh, and I'm glad that, that public opinion, I think, has now uh, uh, produced uh, the, the opposite. Yes, I think so. Uh, and is it, as I believe it to be, the beginning of uh, a recognition by this government that we do need to, to reconsider where we are, that we do need to look around us and say, right, we're going to have to deal with this one way or the other. Uh, we cannot continue to mask up every time we go out. We cannot continue to ask our children to keep taking tests. We cannot continue uh, to make people feel as though there's something frightening outside their front door. And we must get back to normal. Yeah, I, we really have got to learn to live with it. And if you now look at where COVID is in, in, in the list of killers, um, it's actually no longer anywhere near the top. Uh, and I think that, that that is quite important to recognise. People have been scared. Somebody else wants to wear a mask, I don't mind, but there should be no compulsion whatever mm. on anybody in any setting except possibly in you know, hospitals uh, to actually wear a mask. Uh, and uh, I think, yeah, we do need our freedoms back and we do need to learn to live with it. And above all... We need to get it in proportion. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I do get a sense, and I don't know whether you agree with me, Anne, that the government is beginning to sort of move in that direction. It's no longer the the sort of the gatekeeper uh, telling people to be worried. The figures are not what the, uh, what what they were back in January and February. The numbers of deaths are still, you know, uh, not particularly low, but also, you know, not something to worry about. Well, if you look at where we are now and where we were at, at, at the peak, um, it's a completely different picture, and, and that is due to the vaccine. Mm. Um, and that, you know, there's no point in having all that vaccine success. There was no point in being ahead of the world uh, in getting the programme delivered if we're not then going to take full advantage of it. Yes, I think that's absolutely right, because we are... Um recovering economy wise people are much more likely now to be back at work than they were even two weeks ago london seems a lot busier uh, when i walk past london bridge station in the mornings there's more people coming out uh, than there were really since about a year and a half ago um and so that's got to be a good thing yes but i think we uh, it is a good thing kill it but i think we should also accept one very simple fact the return to normalcy is very rarely possible when you've had a huge cataclysm. I mean, you think of after world wars, you know, you, you don't just suddenly everything goes back to normal the next day. And I think we have got major social changes which are going to stay with us. One is working from home. Uh, and the other is uh, one of the reasons why uh, it is difficult to get people in certain occupations is not because of, of Brexit, as is claimed, but it's simply because during the pandemic, um, if people were being furloughed, but they actually wanted to go out and work and earn more money than they were getting on furlough, they changed occupations. I mean, I actually had somebody who was coming in on a voluntary basis to weed my garden, um, and he never wanted to be anything but a chef, was a chef, was doing very well. And he said to me one day, he said, well, um, you know, we're all furloughed, but construction is still going. I'm going into construction. Yeah, right. He did, and he hasn't gone back. And I think all across the economy, there is that sort of movement going on. And you can't expect that, you know, just because the government suddenly, uh, you know, eases a few restrictions, 
But everything is going to be as you and I knew it two years ago. It ain't. But isn't it the case, though, as well, that an awful lot of the people who are working from home and who are continuing to do some work from home are those rather privileged types who can work from home? Because if you're a chef, you can't work from home. If you're a gardener, you can't work from home. If you're a lorry driver, you can't work from home. I mean, most people who are in what you might have called blue-collar jobs have to go somewhere to do what they do. Well, quite obviously. Uh, there are things you can't do from home, but also, quite obviously, there are things you can. Now, you know, there are big benefits to people working from home. You know, you don't have the crowded commuter trains and, and the crowded rush hours. Um, they don't have the expense and the time commitment. They can actually look after uh, uh, the children uh, themselves because they don't have to wait a couple of hours into the evening before they can pick them up from the childminder. There are, there are huge social reasons why, if you can, working from home... Uh, is uh, is a way forward. And above all, it will stimulate local services. Because what do you do at the moment if you're commuting? You take the dry cleaning with you and you deposit it at a cleaner in yeah. the city. And the little town high streets are dying, absolutely dying. Uh, and now, if more people work from home, there'll be a greater stimulus to local services. So don't let's think it's all a negative. And what's more, we just have to go into accept it's a given because it's a plus for employers too. They don't have to maintain huge premises. Meanwhile, there's an organisation called Insulate Britain, uh, which I'd never heard of until this morning, Anne. I don't know whether you have. Uh, They're apparently blocking the M25 currently because they want Boris Johnson to, in their words, insulate Britain. I'm not quite sure what that even means. Um, But what is wrong with these people? I mean, I don't know whether they're climate activists. I really don't know what the hell they're doing. But what they are doing is causing a massive tailback and jam uh, for people who are trying to get to do their work every day. Yeah, well, so the question is not what are they doing, what are the police doing? Yeah, well, what are the police doing? Uh, yeah, I think it's every time there's a big Extinction Rebellion demonstration in London and people can't get to hospitals and emergency vehicles to help that. I think what are the police doing? And it's time, I mean, I want to protect the right to demonstrate. I believe totally in the right to demonstrate. But the right to demonstrate should not mean that you bring the country to a stop or you bring particular areas right. to the country. Well, I mean, this is this is one of the broader problems that I talk about an awful lot on this show, Anne, and I'm sure you write about quite a lot as well, that we seem to have a public sector in this country which is not fit for purpose. We've got an NHS which is failing the people, by and large, because it's badly run, uh, it's badly mismanaged by the, uh, the people in charge of it. We've got a police service that doesn't seem to know... Uh, how to arrest people anymore. Uh, we've got a border force that can't seem to stop anybody from coming into the country. And we've got civil service, generally speaking, uh, who don't want to come back to work. Yep, you've said it. But, uh, well, I, I, as I say, I, I see big benefits from working for home for the economy as a whole as well as individuals. But you have nevertheless summed up the problem. Uh, and so you've got to ask yourself where the buck stops. And it stops with the politicians. You know, what are the politicians doing about it? If we've got public services for which they are responsible Mm. and for which they tax us, if they've got public services that aren't working, that is where the buck stops, on the desks of the secretaries of state. But how have we got here? How is it possible that we have somehow managed to create an entire infrastructure and an administration, and I call it a civil service administration, which is not fit for purpose? I mean, hardly any of it. I can't name one government department that works properly. Can you? Uh, I expect there's one somewhere, Uh, but certainly the big ones don't work properly. I mean, uh, DEFRA, DEFRA goes around, you know, sort of massacring animals, uh, which is not supposed to do, it's supposed to survive, you know, keep them safe. Um, we've got the, the, the Defence Department, uh, which is not fit for purpose. We've pulled out of Afghanistan, leaving a lot of people behind. And I know that, that, that you've, you've, got, something, you've got something to say about that. Yeah, that, I, I do have something to say about the Afghan interpreters. But first of all, um, the sheer speed at which we pulled out and the Americans leaving behind £62 billion worth of equipment finally presented to the Taliban, that was down to Biden. All NATO opposed coming out at that speed. But that is not an excuse for what happened to the interpreters. We have had years. I first wrote about the Afghan interpreters in the Express six years ago. Mm. And I was by no means the first person to do so. Six years ago. They've had years in which to get the interpreters out in an orderly fashion, in an undramatic fashion, with a couple of suitcases instead of just clothes they stand up in, and they have not done it. Uh, And for that, uh, I find it very, very difficult indeed to have any respect uh, for uh, this government, because they were in charge of that. Ministry of Defence were pushing the whole time, commanding officers were saying, you know, we can 
we can identify the interpreters, we know where they are, we want them out, and the government just got itself completely tied up in bureaucracy and wanting to dot every last I and cross every last T mm. uh, before they would let somebody who'd been shot at and put his life on the line for Britain into the country. Uh, and yet daily, daily, we get illegal immigrants pouring across the channel into Britain and we can't bring people who serve this country over. Uh, and that is completely wrong, completely wrong. And they should not be allowed to get away with it. No, but isn't that kind of um, typical, really, of where we have arrived at in this country, where we now currently are, that you can't do anything uh, without sort of triplicate um, papers being produced, documents being signed, exchanged. You know, there is no seemingly common sense method to do anything anymore. You know, if you want planning permission for something, you've got to jump through a bunch of hoops. If you want to buy a house, you've got to wait months and months and months for all sorts of surveys and all sorts of, you know, verifications here, verifications there, uh, all of which are probably much more simply done uh, if you just took a different attitude to it. Well, I mean, very good example. When they started asking for volunteers um, to do the vaccinations and started asking for NHS staff to come back, you know, retired NHS staff to come back, help with a big vaccination programme, they began off with a vast number of forms inquiring about uh, these people's um, experience of managing diversity. Yes. Why do you need to manage diversity to shove <laughs> a needle into somebody's arm? I know. Uh, and they... Until government stopped it, uh, which is to say until there was a public outcry and then government stopped it, nobody had actually thought to inquire, is this reasonable? You know, people who were administering all these forms never thought to ask, you know, hang on, isn't this a bit over the top? Yeah. Isn't this a bit inappropriate? And common sense is what is completely lacking now, just plain, basic common sense. Yeah. You have a situation, you deal with it, you don't, uh, you know, supply forms. Well, I was told the other day, uh, and we'll take a little break in a moment, I was told the other day by several people, uh, this is off the back of um, KPMG asking if they could hire more working class people, that apparently when you fill out um, a job application now, more often than not, you are asked whether or not you had free school meals at school and what your parents did for a living. I mean, what the hell's going on? But I'll leave you with that thought for a second, and we'll come back to you in a moment. So I want to ask you about Boris Johnson's wish to stay in power longer than Margaret Thatcher, what he's doing to the Tory party that you love and that I thought was actually Conservative. It doesn't seem to be anymore. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Anne Whittacombe, former Conservative MP, former Minister, of course, Brexit Party MEP as well. Um, and let's talk about the Tory party and what Boris Johnson's doing to it, because there are people who think that the vaccine passport reversal uh, is kind of driven by um, a worry that unpopularity is looming uh, over the next hill um, because Boris Johnson's not really doing what he said he would do, particularly with regard to bringing in a new tax, national insurance, 1.25% to pay for the NHS. He says he wants to live in Downing Street longer than Margaret Thatcher did. Has he got a chance of doing that? I would have, <clears throat> at the moment, I would say the only reason he's got any chance at all is because the opposition is so thoroughly weak. Mm. Uh, you know, and Keir Starmer is, is, is remarkably ineffective, quite honestly. Yeah. Uh, and if there were a general election tomorrow, I suspect people would vote for Boris because, you know, the, the, there is no real alternative. Um, but if he's going to stay there as long as Thatcher or longer, then he needs to do what Thatcher did, which was to actually uh, implement conservatism and you know, yeah. reduce the size of the, of the state sector. Now, Boris promised not to raise national insurance. And I would understand uh, when he says that, look, you know, when we wrote the manifesto, there was no sign of the pandemic. We didn't know that. You know, if you had a, a sudden major war, you wouldn't expect to find all the manifesto promises implemented. Mm. I, I understand that completely. And, and I concede that part of the argument. But it's the overall principle that I thought we had and that I thought Boris had here too which was that the way you stimulate an economy is not by taxing, it's by actually lowering taxes, giving people more of their own money, stimulating businesses, um, and basically doing what Singapore did. Well, uh, so, uh, which started with, you know, a fraction of our advantages. So yes. I, 
I, I feel very strongly that he's just going down the wrong route. Although I understand, I don't accuse him of, of manifesto breaking as such, because I understand the circumstances that demanded that. But I do think he's nevertheless, in, in principle, going down the wrong route. Yes, but is, that's the point. I mean, it may be that you can forgive the, the manifesto situation because of what happened and because of COVID, and that's fine. However, you know, the promises that he made and the promises of a return to sort of conservatism, which I think David Cameron had already lost the plot on, um, he hasn't done. You know, the borders are not tighter than they were. Immigration is not under control. Uh, the crime levels in this country are going up. They're not going down. Um, and he's now putting taxes up. It would have been more honest, it seems to me, to say, look, we've got to put taxes up in order to pay for furlough, in order to pay for the COVID pandemic, not to pretend that it's for the NHS, because everybody knows the NHS isn't going to get any better. The NHS is not going to get any better until it's reformed. You can't just throw more money at it. I mean, I said in 1998, when I was Shadow Health Secretary and I made it the centre the centerpiece of my party conference speech, uh, that the NHS cannot and never has actually been able to deliver every last demand that is made upon it, to meet right. every last demand that is made upon it. It can't do that, never has been able to do it. And in an age when every time you open your newspapers, there's a, there's a new medicine, there's a new surgical procedure coming on stream, that brings a huge tail of demand behind it. Now, the trouble is we have confused Bevan's vision and Bevan's vehicle. His vision was we all sign up to nobody should ever be denied a, a health service uh, because they are too poor to afford it we all agree with that but the vehicle he chose to bring that about was therefore everything free at the point of reception even if you're a multimillionaire, everything is free that's the way he was going to deliver his vision well the vehicle's broken down and we've now seriously got to ask whether we should have made that the centrepiece, instead of getting back to the vision, which is, is that nobody should be denied health because they can't afford it. And that means that those who can afford it should be expected to make a much greater contribution. Yes, I think that's fair enough. And I think people would understand that. One last question, Anne, for you. What about the migrant crisis? What about the illegal uh, dinghies showing up still on a daily basis on the southeast uh, corner of this country? Uh, seemingly Pretty Patel is incapable of stopping it. Yes, she is. Um, and so have successive governments been now. Um, I said in 1999, I'm sorry to quote what I was saying in those days, but you know, if we'd started then, we, we would... No, well, I, th I, th I, think, I think they should have listened to you. Well, I wish they had. But in 1999, I proposed uh, a policy uh, whereby every single new claimant for asylum, every single one, was uh, put into a secure reception centre until that claim had been determined. Because why are we such a magnet? Why are people who are in a safe country like France still spending every day trying to get here illegally? Uh, the answer is that the message that goes out to the world is if you come to Britain, once you get in, you're very, very unlikely ever to be removed. Mm. I wanted to reverse that message. And I wanted the message to say, if you are genuine, you'll always be welcome. Yes. But if you come here with a frivolous or a false claim, you are going to be detained on day one you are going to be dealt with quickly and you will be sent back if you do not fulfill the criteria. That is the message. Who is going to pay £10,000 to a human trafficking agent for that? I think that's a very, very good point. Well made. And great to talk to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Anne Whittacombe, uh, Daily Express columnist, former Conservative MP, former Minister, uh, Brexit Party MEP as well. And of course, as she says, she's been saying a lot of these things for a very long time. She was saying them before the turn of this last century, for heaven's sake. But people didn't do what she suggested. Boris Johnson, I think, is now running scared. He wants to be popular. He doesn't want uh, people to vote him out. He certainly believes that he is the answer uh, to the nation's problems. And if he is already failing and falling down on the vaccine passports front, then maybe we could get him to fall down and fail on a few other of the policies that they'd like to introduce. And that would be a great victory for the people and a great victory for common sense. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, it is time to say, without further ado, a very good morning to Mr Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Good morning. Um, as I suspected, uh, you will say, I was right all along, you should never have trusted them, now look what they're doing. And I can't disagree with any of that, really. <laughs> well, I won't bother to say it in that case. I mean, <laughs> what's been amusing over the past uh, couple of weeks has been the number of people saying, oh, actually, yes, the Tories aren't any good, they are useless. And uh, even occasionally people saying Hitchens was right. 
my favourite. Uh, this must uh, this must hurt you somewhat, though, Peter, because we know how contrary you like to be. The idea that people well, say you no, must have no, been right it must well, be very upsetting for you. Uh, one of my chief joys in life is saying, "I told you so." It, it, it has to be because what else can I? What else can I get pleasure out of? But and I did. It was a wonderful headline in the Daily Telegraph not long ago. Saying, a conservative party, not um, not very conservative. Uh, I thought, no, it was the biggest biggest news. In the Telegraph will soon be catching up with the fact that Harold Goldwinson lost the Battle of Hastings. Yes, quite. Now, would you say that you would agree with me that they have backed off this vaccine passport uh, idea purely and simply because they've worked out that people not only don't want it, but don't really understand it and don't know how to make it work? Well, I think that's probably it. They, they, they've zigzagged unceasingly over this, it seems to me. I can't remember how many times they've changed their position on it. So don't rely on them necessarily sticking to this position. But mm. I think the difficulty with it has always been uh, that it will be very, very hard to implement if they try, try to bring it in. And that failure to implement it will weaken them in a way, of course, that, that failed law enforcement does. I think that may have a lot to do with it. Uh, I, I, I have a suspicion that an awful lot of people don't have very adequate records, for mm. instance, of their, of their vaccines. And also, the, the number of the people who would be most affected by a vaccine passport scheme at, say, nightclubs are among those who have yet to be vaccinated. So I, I, I suspect it's practicality rather than public opinion, but who can tell with this lot? Well, it is difficult, isn't it? And as you say, they do go backwards and forwards. I mean, many of the things that they have brought in, they said they weren't going to. And many of the things they said they were going to bring in, they haven't brought in. So it's sort of uh, six of one, half dozen of the other, isn't it? Or they change their mind later. Yeah. Because uh, we're now entering the, the, the early autumn period when numbers of people in hospital will inevitably, alas, rise. And this could be the trigger for all kinds of things which the, the, the government is technically ruling out or trying to avoid. And I, I really wouldn't like to predict the course of events over the next oh, two months uh, or how serious it might get. But I certainly wouldn't rely on this government to, to, to stay away from the, 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 the heavy authoritarian measures which it's used in the past. If, it, if, it's, if, if, they, if, if they feel it will suit it will suit them to do this politically, then they will do that. Mm. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? Because I was talking to my 17-year-old at the weekend who a few weeks ago when he was offered the vaccine wanted to take it on the grounds that he wouldn't be able to do anything if he didn't. I said, well, let's just wait and see, shall we? And sure enough, it turns out that he's not going to be stopped from going into a nightclub or a a bar uh, next year because he doesn't have a vaccination. So, you know, it was maybe just for that purpose in the first place. Yeah, but you couldn't have known that then, could you? And it's not—you can't just turn up and have the vaccination, and then and then it's over. If you to be vaccinated to get a certificate, you'd have to have it twice yeah. over a quite long period of time. So you could be left high and dry, couldn't you, with yeah. your life severely curtailed? If the government had taken a different view, and you can quite understand why people might say, "Well, let's be prepared for that." Uh, and I and I think a lot of people probably have. Yes, yes but, but I but I, I mean I've had, I've had... Of, 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 of universities themselves, which are behaving quite disgracefully at the moment in in, in insisting on distance learning mm. rather than actual physical contact for, for for a lot of lectures, and are simply not giving value for money. And I, I suspect a lot of people of student age. Have, have thought, well, maybe if I get if, if I get vaccinated, then I'll be able to insist on getting a proper university course. But I don't think they, mm. I don't think even if they do that these the universities, which seem to me to be uh, rapacious businesses rather than educational institutions now, are going to pay much attention to it. No, I don't think they are. I mean, they're, they're not too interested in socially distancing from China, according to the front page of the Times today. But that's, well, it, it's it, another it's, story. It's hardly surprising, that really, is it? Extraordinary how, how deep China has got into our university system. Yes, and, and and deeper all the time, and in fact, deeper into this country in general. It's uh, and what do you, I mean, given that you have many many times warned of things that will come back to bite us. I mean, what is the long term strategy for China in doing that? Do you think? Well, China is becoming a, a a great world power, and it is unhesitating in defending its own interests and in standing up for itself. And I I, I always say of countries which do this, I don't criticise them for, for looking after their own interests because that's what countries should mm. do. I, I criticise our own government for not being as tough. I just I often admire the French for being completely ruthless in pursuing what they want. Uh, we don't, and I think we should, and the Chinese should recognise when they, 
they try and influence events in this country and buy their way into power in this country, that, that we are going to resist it. Uh, but we show no signs of doing so. In fact, there's a great willingness, particularly in bodies like universities, to to, to kowtow yeah. uh, China. And the, the, the biggest symbol of this, which is visible and audible all the time in this country, is the pathetic uh, use of the word Beijing uh, to describe the capital of China uh, instead of Peking, mm. uh, which was actually forced on us uh, by, or, by, or forced on, on British media by threats from the Chinese foreign ministry. One of them recorded to the Times newspaper that if they didn't start saying Beijing instead of Peking, uh, the, the, the Chinese authorities would withdraw cooperation from their correspondent in that yeah. country. Ridiculous. Imagine the, 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 us calling in the, the correspondence of French newspapers and saying, if you don't start calling London, London instead of Londres, we're going to stop cooperating with you. <laughs> yes. That's kind of absurd nonsense. And when we gave into that, they obviously knew that, we, that they could push us around anywhere. And so they have. It'd be a wonderful symbolic moment if we just started calling it Peking again. Well, I think it, so, yeah. It I mean, wouldn't confuse anybody. It's still called Peking Duck. And the biggest and most prestigious university in Peking is called the University of Peking. Mm. And the code for Peking Airport is still P-E-K. And all the French and German and Russian newspapers still call it Peking. Right. So why do we do this kowtow? Yeah. Because, because we, we instinctively grovel. And when they see someone groveling, they say, OK, make them grovel more. Well, precisely. And isn't it surprising that people don't see that coming? You know, a little bit like uh, when I was talking last week about Extinction Rebellion, um, who, having given um, instructions to the government to do various things, having now got the government to do them, are now saying it's not enough. Uh, Greta Thunberg saying, you know, uh, actually, the government in Britain is engaged in uh, clever accounting, carbon accounting, uh, because once you start to give extremists any kind of sucker, uh, they want more. It's not enough. Okay, it's in any battle, if you demonstrate will and the other person gives way, then then you're winning, aren't you? I, I, I don't I don't like to use the term extremist because it's generally used uh, as a way of dismissing the opinions which just don't have to be factual at the moment. Uh, well, I call the extinction rebellion people. Wrong? Well, I call extinction rebellion extremists because of the way well, they behave. You can call them that if you like, but it, I, I'd rather say that the, the problem with extinction rebellion is that they they're so dogmatic. And the, there is this continuing problem with, uh, with the destruction of coal-fired power in this country, uh, which is only being done for dogmatic reasons, even if you accept, and I decline to argue about the issue of man-made global warming anymore, because everyone gets hysterical so quickly, but even if you accept that they, these arguments are correct, the destruction of, of coal-fired power in this country is meaningless, because the, the Chinese and the Indians are building so many coal-fired power stations that they've cancelled out whatever may have been gained uh, in, in, in reducing atmospheric pollution, dozens of times over, uh, and it was it didn't di didn't do any good. It's it's a purely symbolic, dogmatic thing, and yet they insist upon it. And this it suggests to me that we're being ruled by people who are, who are more actually more religious than political. Yes. Well, interestingly, um, you touched on the whole um, anniversary of September the 11th over the weekend because it was, of course, the 20th anniversary. An awful lot of things were said and written and, and pronounced upon. Um, I quite quite liked your take on the whole terror business, which is really that, you know, there's not an awful lot that we've done to stop it. Um, it could happen again at any time, really. Um, and what are we to do, really? Well, terrorism, terrorism, you can never say it won't happen again. Anybody says it won't happen again. The nature of terrorism is often very inventive, uh, surprise attack, as, as was done against New York City 20 years ago. And now, I have to say, I think that particular form of attack would be difficult. The very simple measure of never opening uh, the doors of a flight deck while a plane is in flight to anybody uh, and the and the careful screening of people attending flying schools pretty much eliminates that from happening again. Mm. But the real problem with terror is that is that, that that is exactly what it is. It frightens governments and nations and cultures and societies into into changing themselves for the worse. And we we changed immeasurably for the worse after September the eleventh. Mm. We became more. Uh, more willing to suppress our own liberty, uh, to undergo all kinds of humiliating checks all the time. We've made international travel a nightmare. And in doing so, we, we gave them a tremendous victory. Uh, the, in, in many ways, the best response to it is not to do anything that they want us to do, not to, not to live in fear of them, to try to prevent them, obviously, with, as far as you possibly can. 
but ultimately not to not to let these these uh, these attacks, which are demonstration attacks. I mean, look, it was horrible. The number of people who died on, in, in New York City that day, and and the destruction was was appalling. But in terms of it, it compared with a ma a major war such as the Second World War, or even the Korean War. Uh, the numbers of people killed were not enormous. The threats to the American economy and the stability of society were uh, were nothing like the threats, for instance, to this country and its stability in the Second World War. Uh, so we didn't need to change our behaviour to the extent that we did, and yet we have. Yes, and, uh, but we, I suppose we, we're not we're not we're not consistent about terror. Uh, when they proclaimed the war on terror, they excluded the Irish Republican Army mm. provisional wing. Uh, a body with which both the United States and British governments have had uh, have had dealings through their front organisation Sinn Féin. So, uh, what what is this? What are we? What, what point are we really making by imprisoning ourselves in all these restrictions uh, on on normal life and abandoning a lot yeah. of our lives, setting up secret prisons and black sites and, uh, and, and resorting to torture? Why are we doing this? Instead of saying these people should not be allowed to alter our way of life, that's precisely what they shouldn't be allowed to yeah. do. I mean, I think that's right, generally speaking. But I must admit, and you will know this as well from your travels in the States. I mean, there was a time when traveling around on planes in America was a bit like getting a bus down West End Lane. I mean, there was hardly there was no security. I mean, I remember going in and out of airports for a cigarette and going through security one way, going back out the other way. And I could have been doing anything. And I mean, it probably needed to be better than that. Well, sure. But as, as I say, the, the measures which you can take these days are particularly the, the, the closing flight deck doors pretty much obvious most of the dangers. I, 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 it's not, it really, it, we really have overreacted to this. And the other thing which we did, say the, the introduction of lengthy periods of detention without trial, mm. uh, the, the, the suspension in many ways of habeas corpus and Magna Carta, uh, were huge changes in our society done at the behest uh, of, of this extraordinary group of people. The other thing which I, I keep pointing to, and I, I hugely recommend again and again and again a fantastic book on September the 11th called The Eleventh Day by Summers and Swan, uh, which actually describes what happened and, uh, and makes the point, which I seriously make, that people should pay more attention to the fact uh, that most of the hijackers came from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And they were certainly bankrolled, it would appear, from Saudi Arabian coffers, whether or not it was. Well, it's very, difficult. it's very difficult to go any further than that. And I, I, I'm not really ready to do so because one needs facts. I simply point out that there, there is, and if you read the book, you'll get this very strong impression that this is an aspect of the, of the event which is, is not very much pursued, either in political or security terms, and I think should be taken more seriously. Yes, in the very same way that Bob Woodward's book, Bush at War, uh, points out in the very first chapter, that the decision was made to invade Iraq on the basis of 9-11, even knowing that it was nothing to do with Iraq. Well, that's so disgraceful, and it remains one of the great disgraces of modern times, the, the war on Iraq, and what's more, the failure of intelligence informed opinion to uh, at high levels to oppose it. And it's perfectly true that large numbers of people of the traditional left went out on the streets to oppose the Iraq war, and they were quite right to do so. Uh, but other people who should also have opposed it in positions of responsibility, educated uh, people in, in all the major political parties, the civil service and the media who supported this nonsense, uh, who could have seen with a moment's attention and work that it was it was not a, that, that Iraq was not the origin of September the 11th, uh, still have a huge burden of guilt on them for the catastrophe which they mm. visited on. So catastrophe which it has so many effects, not turning the Middle East into a cauldron and also beginning this gigantic wave of, of migration uh, out, of the, out of the Middle East and towards Europe, uh, which is still having such an immense effect on our societies. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Speaking of which, we will return to that theme because coming up, uh, Peter, if you stay with us for a moment, um, we're just going to stop briefly to talk coming up about why uh, he wishes he was still living in 1962 because life was a lot different then. This is Talk Radio. This is Talk Radio across the UK. Online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday. Peter wrote a piece at the weekend about um, the old days, uh, for want of a better phrase, I suppose, 1962 to be precise. It was in uh, response to something that had been written before. Peter, tell us about, uh, about that. What happens is David Kynaston, the historian, 
has written a book called On the Cusp about 1962, describing really the last year before the modern world took over Britain. Uh, and it's, it is a fascinating little book. Uh, and our book reviewer, Craig Brown, had uh, written a, a piece about this in which he had c c cast doubt on the idea that uh, that uh, there'd been any such thing as the good old days and so on and so forth. And people uh, talking about golden ages should understand how much worse life was. And I re responded to this by saying, well, actually, if forced to choose between living in 1962 and 2021, having lived in both of them, I would choose 1962. Uh, this is not some golden age rubbish. I recognise many things wrong with 1962, from the incessant smoking and the chillblains and the <laughs> awful food and the uh, and all kinds of other dreadful things, not to mention the, the, the terrible teeth and so forth. But I also understand that the, the world has, has not necessarily been a, a total improvement in, the, in the, the, the 60 years between then and now. Mm. And I pointed out one fascinating thing. People often say, oh, it's the, the, the Ladybird book version of the of the world was yeah. completely cleaned up and ridiculous. And in fact, I quoted from an obituary of the man who, who, who did the drawings for the Lady Bird books of, of that period. And this was in The Guardian, a left-wing newspaper, and it, it pointed out that the artist had actually been working from photographs he'd taken uh, of uh, new council estates mm. in the West Midlands, where he, which was known to him. And he was giving a completely true account of a, of a, of a world where respectable working-class people lived uh, lives of considerable calm and and, uh, and, and prosperity uh, and cleanliness and order, which a lot of people would find enviable today. Yeah. And one of the things that I often say about now and then is that one of the greatest disasters of modern times, still praised very foolishly, I think, by many conservatives, is the, uh, the, the sale of council houses and the breakup of the council estates, mm -hmm. which were uh, which were very settled and often very happy communities, and which ceased to exist and which we could badly do with, and especially given that we now have a housing benefit system that costs more than the Royal Air Force uh, to maintain and does no good at all. But not just that. I mean, there were the, the, the state schools were immeasurably better. The levels of law and order were better. And there's one fascinating contrast here. Uh, it's absolutely true that the hospitals we have today are far more advanced and the, and the doctors far better trained than they were in 1962. And it's a good thing they are because of the huge numbers of people who come into those hospitals with terrible knife wounds, who, given the medical standards of 1962, would die, uh, giving us, therefore, a huge homicide rate comparable with that in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's only because we saved so many people from serious knife trauma that they, that, that they live at all. Now, that's an interesting thing, is that you've got a material advance, uh, the hospitals are better, the skills are better, uh, but the, the actual society in which they exist is, has declined into one which is far more violent and contains far more danger than before. If you're swapping, uh, you're trying to work out which of those is more valuable, which is, in fact, more important, the society where people are more civilized and better behaved or where the technology is better and there are more mobile phones. Yes. So, the other thing, 62, which is crucial, is that in 62, we hadn't taken some of the really stupid decisions we took, uh, the, the abolition of the grammar schools and the, the, the destruction of the railways, uh, which are now pretty much irreversible. And the future was therefore still open to being much better than it, it could possibly be now. Yes. And one of the things you also mentioned in passing uh, was the drug problem, because drugs now are far more widespread, I suppose, than they were then. Um, and, and that is possibly one of the most important factors, you would say. Well, this is my response. People say, I'd say the smoking was, was terrible. But actually, a startling number of people still do smoke tobacco in, this, in our society. And it's, it's still promoted by product placement in, in films and on television. Amazing advertising is banned. But it's been joined by another poison, uh, de facto legalized, particularly marijuana, whose effects remain unmeasured, but which the use of which is correlated so strongly uh, both with mental illness and with violent behaviour, that I, I'm amazed that we, we put up with this and concentrate so much effort on on trying to stamp out ordinary cigarettes. I mean, I'm absolutely in favour of continuing to, to, to make tobacco smoking a, a thing of the past. But why, if we're rightly concerned about that, we, we actually, there are so many people in our society who actually want to re relax the restrictions on marijuana. I simply don't know. So there's another comparison where I don't think 1962 comes off so badly. No, quite. And I suppose other people might say, and we haven't got a lot of time for this one, I'm afraid, but so if you can give me a reasonably succinct answer, some people might say immigration has changed dramatically over the past 60 years as well. Well, maybe it has, but I think immigration is, is, is always, 
it's the way it's managed that's important. If you have a society which seeks to integrate those who come, then immigration will work. If you don't, then it won't. Uh, but I will say one other thing, which I think is absolutely unquestionable, and anybody who was a, who was a child at the time in the early 60s will say the same thing. We were so much freer. We could go where we liked. We weren't constantly supervised, forced to sit at home, staring at screens. We could just go out. That's gone completely. And it, 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 in judging the value of the of society of today against society of 1962, it's one of the crucial things in yeah. which life got a lot worse. Yeah, there were a lot fewer signs in those days as well, weren't there? Whereas now, <laughs> everywhere you go, there's a sign telling you what to do. Peter, Don't do that. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday, columnist as ever, uh, talking about a wide variety of things, some of which he wrote about uh, this weekend. Fascinating stuff. Um, the world has changed, and sometimes you would say for the better, sometimes you might say uh, for the worse. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, now available, of course, on television as well as on the radio, so you can watch us uh, in glorious Technicolor 24-7. And coming up tonight, by the way, Ian Collins has got a special from 10 o'clock. He's going to take a look at the 10 most ridiculous cancel culture moments from the past 12 months, from curry to clapping to children's books. So uh, don't forget, tune in at 10pm tonight for Ian Collins uh, on talkradio.tv uh, and you can also go and download the app from the Talk Radio uh, TV app store. Uh, so it's Cancel Countdown on Talk Radio tonight from 10pm. We'll ask Ian about that because he's coming in, of course, to do a show uh, in about an hour's time. First up, though, let's talk to Lisa Francesca now. Hi, Lisa. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well indeed. Which, which part of the world are you in at the moment? I'm in sunny Brighton at are the you? moment. I was in Spain. Yeah, I was in Spain for four weeks mm. and that was wonderful. But I'm back here in Brighton. But I have been very brave and booked tickets for half term. So we'll see. Oh, very there. good. Well, I'm, I'm, I might be in the market for some half term um, holidaying. So we're going to try and see where it is we, we might be able to go. What do you think is going to happen? Um, I've, I'm under the impression that since the summer holidays have passed, that it's all going to start getting a bit easier. Yeah, you'd think they'd make it easier for us to travel over the summer holidays because that's when people earn their money. And also yeah. there's something about the virus being, you know, a little bit less in the heat. You know, we, we used to hear that. Nobody's really talking about that anymore. But they didn't make it any easier. As you know, we've had these um, traffic light reviews every three weeks. And there's one due this coming Thursday, uh, next Thursday, rather. So mm. we're quite excited about that, the 16th. Whether there will be some major changes or not, I don't really know. We can always speculate about what countries might go green and amber and red and then the government like to surprise us you know so speculation doesn't doesn't really work but i'm hoping that more countries will be on there and then in addition to that in addition to the changes uh, the review of the changes due on the 16th there's also the 1st of october which possibly might be an end to all of the traffic light restrictions mm. that's something that's being talked about as well right and of course that's all very well providing that the country you want to go to will let you in which at the moment is still quite tricky isn't isn't it? Exactly. Take the US, for example. I know you've got family in the US. I was thinking of trying to get to the US for my, my brother's birthday in October, again, over the half-term period. Right. And at the moment, they're not letting us in. They're also still not accepting the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, which I've had as well. So there's so many unknowns. And there are many, many countries, you know, Australia and New Zealand, for example, that have said, yeah, they're on our green list. They're still not letting us in. So I think the, uh, the, the caution is, if you are thinking of going to any country, indeed, do a lot of checks of course all this is is putting people off i mean just anecdotally i know so many people that are usually really keen travelers and they're saying i'm not going to bother it's too much hassle i have to say from someone who did make their way to spain for four weeks and did the whole airport thing and, and the papers and everything it was hassle you know I, I have to admit and the pcr test which i'm sure you're going to ask me about in the yeah. minute that was hassle and expensive um but it was worth it you know for me and it is worth it i think to travel but th there's only about 30 percent of people who are usually traveling so it's clear that yes. you know, a good 70 percent of people who want to travel are thinking i'm not going to bother yeah no my family went to croatia and and the traveling part was actually easier than anything else it was paperwork that was a pain in the neck and and the tests were quite expensive but you know um they they, they also thought it was worth it because they had a nice time and it was a lovely place they went to so you know i guess you just have to weigh that up but it would be nice wouldn't it if they would make it easier uh, for us to actually know what's going to happen for half term so you could actually go ahead and book something Absolutely. And they're talking about one of the things they're talking about is scrapping PCR tests, the yeah. day two 
of fully vaccinated people. Mm. So just for example, I've been through the process myself recently. So I was in Spain knowing that I had to have PCR tests on day two. I booked the cheapest provider on the gov.uk website. On, so on the actual government's website, they suggest the list of the people uh, who you can contact. So I booked the cheapest one uh, because I'm, you know, just thought it'd be a good, a good idea. And yeah. also, why not go for the cheapest one? It's recommended by the government. My day two PCR tests arrived on day six. <laughs> so theoretically, if it was all about the PCR tests, I could have been out spreading the virus yeah. nearly around the whole of Sussex in that time. So it's it's really, really annoying. It's, it's unregulated, it's restricted. And I really think that they need to get rid of this PCR test mm. uh, requirement, at least for the double vaccinated. It's an incentive for people to get vaccinated. And also, why are we getting the vaccine you know in in this case if if it doesn't sort of help us well exactly when it comes to travel well that's the thing and i mean i've heard stories of people saying that you know the pcr test came but then they couldn't post it because you know you post it between monday and friday um so by the time it got posted it was kind of you know four days as opposed to two days so there's no logic to any of it really is there there doesn't seem to be any any logic in this. And, I, I you know, I'm not like a, a big person to, to cry conspiracy or political correctness got mad or anything, but it really does seem that they're just doing this to make money out of us. And there's all these private companies making an absolute fortune out of these PCR tests, yeah. and they're totally unregulated. And like I said, coming back on day six instead of day two, like you said, people not being able to part, uh, mm. post them, them not being accepted, they're going missing. I'm hearing all sorts of horror stories. So why not just get rid of them? We're testing as many people as possible via the NHS, via the lateral flow ones, or if it has to be PCR, let's do it for free at least, or just get rid of it And uh, for those double vaccinated people. I'm really hoping that this does happen. There's rumours that it might happen by the 1st of October, mm. uh, but who knows. Yeah, well, that is the problem, isn't it? We are sort of hostages to fortune because depending on what the government comes out with, uh, you're either in a worse place because of the figures they're putting out uh, or you're in a better place um, because of the figures they're not putting out or because they've seen a change or something. I mean, because all we know uh, is that the figures are probably going to rise as schools uh, going back take effect and as people uh, get further into the autumn, you know, and if they keep reacting to that, um, you know, we won't be able to go anywhere. Exactly. I mean, this is it. We don't count flu cases. We don't count chickenpox cases. I think no. it's just something. I'm not a scientist, but it's something we're going to have to learn to live with. Cases, of course, they're going to rise. I've got two kids off school at the moment waiting uh, for PCR test results. They've had coughs and colds and temperatures. Right. Of course, cases are going to rise. But the most important thing is if you look at the numbers, people in hospital, they're not nearly the same amount as they were several months ago. So something is working. Something is working and we do need to get things moving. Otherwise, you know, the travel industry is my speciality businesses are going to go in travel and in other in other industries as mm. well so we really we need to balance that out and we need to get these things moving and i think the pcr test scrapping those very expensive unregulated pcr tests would be absolutely wonderful and one of the first things we need to do yes and is anybody actually kind of looking ahead to next summer at this point i mean and is it worth doing that i mean for people listening to this you know, if they're wanting to do so, should they just book a holiday next summer and, and hopefully expect to be able to go? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I've booked for October. I'll be booking for Christmas if I can. The only person I've seen recently looking ahead to next summer is Michael O'Leary. And, you know, he comes with a, a sort of caution <laughs> label with anything he says. But he says that next summer everything will be very expensive because of the supply and demand issue, because he thinks that there'll be fewer uh, options in terms of flights and hotels. Uh, and also people will be having to spend more money and people there'll be a greater demand. But then he also said that they're going to lower Ryanair flights uh, so people can get moving so I don't know if it was just a bit of a publicity uh, stunt for him but certainly the appetite is there for travel I mean like I said there's a lot of people who are saying oh I'm not going to bother I really hope that people do mm. start to bother and the, the government makes this it easy for us to do so. No absolutely right and I mean as far as the way that uh, Spain and Portugal and those kinds of countries in southern Europe Mediterranean countries I know Italy is a little bit easier to get into now what's the attitude there in terms of their sort of long term in the winter sun? They just want people there. They really do. You know, they know. And like when I, when I was on the beaches of Spain and even the cities of Spain, it doesn't feel any more at risk than it does here. In fact, mm. it feels better because you're all outdoors and, and they've got the sunshine and they need us. Of course, they need to, uh, you know, make sure travel is moving safely, but they also need us. And there's things to weigh up, such as having people on, on in the bars and the restaurants, you know, hotels, people, businesses have closed and those countries need us. So that I don't know if you saw in the news a few weeks ago, Italy had a, a five day quarantine. Quarantine, that's yeah. now gone. 
And people are make it, making it easier for us to get to those countries because they need them there. Now there's just other countries such as Turkey who are desperate to have us in that need to get their, uh, them, them taken down the, the traffic light system to make sure that we can actually go there. Yeah. Whether the traffic light system might actually be scrapped in a few weeks or not, who knows? And people coming here from America currently, uh, if they're double jabbed, don't have to take a test coming in. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Well, if, uh, if uh, the USA is on the amber list, so they will have to take the uh, PCR oh, well, the test two on day, day two. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Every, everyone, if you've had the double jab, has to take the day two PCR test. But other than that, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, you but don't have to no, do anything there's no actual, You don't have to quarantine. There's no actual quarantine or anything like that. I, there's no quarantine, no. But the red list is still quarantining people in hotels. It's absolutely ridiculous. Right. Is coming from those countries at the moment for a jolly. They're all coming for serious reasons. I personally think they should scrap the hotel uh, red list quarantine and get them to quarantine at home and check on them there like we were doing previously. Well, there are stories going around today that one, uh, that is against the human rights of individuals and they shouldn't be forced into it. And two, thousands of people are not bothering to quarantine anyway because there's just simply not enough people to go around to check if everybody's actually doing what they say they're doing. You know, I'm not going to, to say that you should do that because it, it, it's illegal and you might also get fined. But you can totally see why, why people um, would think, well, actually, this seems a little bit ridiculous. I've been careful. I've taken a test. I've got two uh, double jabs. I've, I've taken a test and it's negative. You know, people are doing all that sort of stuff at home. And uh, but, yeah, there's a court case being brought about saying that actually this is against our human rights. You know what? Bring it about. I love these random court cases that people decide to, uh, to do, whether it's going to make any difference to the legislation or not i don't know well i wonder i mean having seen the vaccine passport sort of u-turn based on a u-turn based on another u-turn i mean it seems to me that the government will change its policy if enough people complain about it for long enough and i think that's kind of where we are now I'd love to think that the government are actually listening to us, but I think if they were listening to us, particularly in the travel industry, they would have changed something be- changed something before now, before the summer season was essentially lost uh, to travel. I think most, hopefully, I haven't heard of any big travel businesses going under at the moment, but I do know that people are really, really struggling, like the, the little travel agents, the small uh, individual companies where people have just spent the last year and a half booking and rebooking things. So I would love to think that the government is listening to us, and I think it's worth, absolutely worth getting vocal about it you know if you have a platform or even if you don't you know talk up about it do get vocal about it but are they listening to us mike i I don't know but you know whether they're listening to us or not it does seem hopefully fingers crossed like there will be some more positive changes soon well i mean they, they, they have been willing haven't they to allow certain people to travel you know like if you're a high net worth individual you can go wherever you like if you've got a private jet not a problem you know you can do things um if you can sort of get permission to do them if you like but it's just the mass market they seem to be against encouraging but i would have thought now that they've got to the point where we've got to they've passed the summer holidays you know they can slightly loosen the old uh, you know the manacles the mass market is where the money is, mm. you know, it really is. That's where it's the people going on their two week holidays to the Costa del Sol. Yeah. You know, it's the people. It's also the, the businesses as well. You think of the US UK uh, travel corridor that, that well, there is no corridor. There was meant to be a corridor. We were talking about a corridor back in June. Can you imagine the amount of money that has been lost to businesses and people unable to to meet each other face to face? It is ridiculous. And it just beggars belief that we're still having this conversation uh, months and months later when in other countries countries it's far more relaxed and they are they are racing ahead of us they really are yeah well that's the thing and if and, and lots of different parts of europe are open to lots of people from different parts of europe and we're just kind of you know we've got ourselves out there i know there will be some people who say oh that's because of brexit it's just it's not necessarily because of that but it's partly because of that that we're no longer in the eu but it's also because we keep pumping out these numbers uh, and telling people how terrible it all is here Exactly. And you know what? It's it's not as terrible here as we make out. We're testing far more people than they are in other countries. I don't think you can go on those numbers, the case numbers. I really don't think you should. And also, I know Brexit and everything has had something to do with it, but we are one, you know, Europe, technically, uh, geographically. We are still in Europe, even though we might have left, left the EU. I think we should be making decisions more on the lines that they are. You're absolutely right. In Spain, the, the tourists there, there were no British tourists when I was there uh, for four weeks under, over the summer. But there were plenty of people from other EU countries and we're just behind in personally, in travel and also in business. You Mm. know, all of that is really important to people. And we also need uh, tourism dollars here in England as well and in Scotland and in Wales and in Northern Ireland because there's an awful lot of money uh, which is normally expected to be brought into this country uh, from people who travel here sightseeing. And I know there's, there's a bit of it coming back, but not very much. 
I bang on about this all the time and I don't understand why not more people are not banging on about this, but I think it's something like a hundred, over a hundred billion pounds yeah. that are earned uh, from people coming into this country. Right. And if you go to all the sites at the moment, yes, there's local tourists, there's local people traveling around because everyone's been doing so-called staycations, but there's no tourists. You know, we need tourists in this country. It, it's exactly that. It's a two-way process. We need to move. We need to get people here. And, and, you know, is it too late? You know, most of the people come here over the summer, our weather is just about to get a bit crap let's face it uh -huh. how many people are going to come flooding into the uk now probably not many but i just hope that businesses that are related to it can can hold on until it, it starts to get a bit nicer again yeah well let's hope so lisa great to talk to you thank you very much indeed lisa francesca nan travel expert creator of the big travel podcast they're hoping uh, that half term which if you've got children everybody will know is in october might well be now uh, a place that you can think about travelling through. Uh, you think about taking a week off and going somewhere uh, possibly warm or just going anywhere at this point. Um, and she says that uh, Michael O'Leary from uh, Ryanair has said that next summer might well be very expensive. That could just be uh, a ruse to get you to book something. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, uh, we're going to be talking about what is going on in your garden. If you have a garden, if you haven't got a garden, I apologise in advance. But basically, uh, there's a new plan underfoot, which actually I quite like the sound of. Uh, this is a best, much better way of saving the climate than sitting on the M25 for hours on end, blocking traffic. This is about gardening and planting trees. So we're going to talk now uh, to the Chief Horticulturalist of the Royal Horticultural Society, uh, Mr Guy Barter. Hello, Guy. Hello. Now, this is definitely something I can get on with because, as I say, we've had a lot of people holding up people on the M25 this morning, which has not pleased me at all. But planting a tree to draw carbon out of the air sounds like a much more sensible plan, to be honest. Yes, it's a great idea. Trees are good for wildlife. They're good for gardens and they're good for addressing climate change. And happily, October is one of the best months of planting trees. Mm. Now, how easy is it to do? Because obviously there are lots of things that people who don't know much about trees, like me, would, would ask you a question about. Like, for example, do you make sure the tree's not going to get too big? Does it need a particular space? Does it need to be in any particular type of ground? Yeah, absolutely right. The first thing is to make sure you get a tree that suits the size of your garden. Right. And um, there's trees to suit every size of garden. Even small gardens can have a large shrub, which, although not as good as a tree, um, is easy to grow and an acceptable substitute where space doesn't allow. Right. And the important thing is to avoid forest giants because in five, ten years <laughs> you'll be regretting your choice. But there's loads of really, really good garden yeah. trees that... Um, a benefit and won't annoy you or your neighbours. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite fortunate in that I've got quite a big garden and it's quite wild, but there's, there's a kind of a copse in the middle of it almost, and one of the trees in there is really tall. Uh, so much, it's so tall. Um, I'm not even sure precisely what it is, but it's got a strange-looking bark that falls off it, and it looks more like an overgrown sort of bush than a, than a tree. But it is a tree, and I'm, uh, you know, so I've got some big trees in the garden already. Um, what do you need to sort of, if you've got trees already, do you put the other tree with it? Uh, no, um, best to put a best to, to site the trees where they won't compete with each other. Mm. Uh, and so, if you've got a big tree already, then consider one that complements it. For example, um, you might have a tree, a big cherry tree that flowers in the spring. Mm. Um, so, consider having one that flowers after that, perhaps an ornamental hawthorn, for example. Okay, what about a fruit tree? Would that be good? Fruit trees are excellent. Um, as well as apples and pears, um, you can also go for the, some of the less usual things that are hard to buy, uh, things like quinces and medlars and mulberries. Um, and uh, they take a little longer than apples and pears to come into fruit, but they do have the benefit of excellent flowers in the case of quince. And um, and, and as far as the amount medlar, of carbon that you can take out of the air with a tree, I mean, what are we looking at there? Well, um it all depends on how big the tree grows and over the over a period of time. But if enough people plant trees, and that is a significant forest sort of effect, and that's sucking out a very great deal of carbon from the atmosphere, it will then be held in the tree trunk um, for a long time. And also the leaf litter and the roots uh, fill the soil with carbon as well. So uh, trees make a, a significant contribution to reducing carbon footprints. And are you looking at using the slogan, dig for victory, as it says in the Times today? I'm not sure about this slogan, <laughs> dig for victory, but um, all will be revealed when we unveil the, the full um, sustainability strategy ah. this evening in the Houses of Parliament. And where would you get um, 
the the seedling, I suppose it would be, or to plant the tree in the first place. Where where would you get that? Um, happily, there's um, a great range of trees in garden centres, and there are specialist nurseries um, who can supply trees. Most people buy a six foot tree from the garden centre, and that's a very good choice because it's big enough to get in the car, and it's easy enough to plant without needing a, a gang of navvies. But uh-huh. if you want to. Uh, several hundred pounds you can buy a really big ready form tree okay um or you can just plant a little seedling i mean is it i mean is it possible to plant say a really really small thing about that size which will then grow into a, a proper tree yeah absolutely possible that's how um the forestry um industry start off their forests mm. and you can buy these little trees from nurseries that supply plants for hedging or you can you might find a, an oak in the corner of your garden and dig that out and plant it but right. i would warn you that in, in 50 years um, an oak gets very very big yeah well i was going to say you might have to be worried about the neighbors yeah. might you? you don't want to put it too close to the neighbor's uh, fence in case for some reason the roots also start pushing up into the next door yeah, that's perfectly true. Um, if you do feel that space is short and um, neighbours, uh, you might cause grief to neighbours, you can buy things called root control bags and plant the trees into those that will restrict the, uh-huh. the spread of the tree's roots and right. also prevent the tree growing too large. And do you need to worry about bugs or, or you know insects or anything that might infect it with something? Happily, trees are really, really resistant to insects mm. and diseases. Um, so by and large, um, they're not a, a big problem, unlike, say, roses, for example, that are susceptible to all sorts of things. Um, so trees are of easy care. But the really important thing is to keep it weed-free and well-watered for the first two years. Right. Um, if they get checked at that time, then they often don't recover. Yes, I was watching a programme, I can't remember what it was, the other week, uh, and it was a lot of trees being planted in a particular area. But one of the things that they were doing, because they were young trees, was protecting the um, the, the bark, if you like, from animals. I think even from, from beavers or from something that was around that particular place. And so they said the trouble with, with sustainability is that the things that we use to protect the tree are made of plastic. And so we're trying to come up with something else to use other than that, because the plastic obviously is not very, very helpful to the environment. Yeah, this is true. Um, trees in the countryside are susceptible to damage from rabbits and hares and deer, right. um, sheep and cattle. And they do need these unsightly and un, unre, unreusable uh, tree guards. Yeah. As you say, there's a lot of work going on to find ones made of plastic or other materials, right. like cardboard, for example, that will break down in the environment. Mm. So is that, is that something that, you, if you are growing a tree, you would need to get as well? Only in rural gardens. Um, in the towns where there's no rabbits and, and hares and deer, um, you're pretty safe. Yeah, I've got, got a lot of rabbits and a couple of foxes, not very many deer. In that case, a low tree guard is <laughs> ideal. But remember, yeah. if it snows, the rabbits can climb up onto the snow and gnaw the bark. So right. be especially careful in snowy weather. Okay. So you're unveiling a plan this evening. Is that, is that What else is going to be in it? Well, um, basically it addresses all the things that gardeners um, do that can have an, envir- an adverse effect on the environment. So, for example, um, peat-free compost is one of the things the Royal Horticultural Society has uh, campaigned on for many, many years. And so we're also looking at other things like the use of plastics in gardens, synthetic fertilisers, pesticides, and particularly the use of water. Um, so that to, in, to looking for ways that people can garden and yet have a minimal impact on the environment. Yes. Well, I should look forward to seeing the full plan in action. Guy, thank you very much indeed. Guy Barton, Chief Horticulturalist of the Royal Horticultural Society. Don't say we don't teach you things here uh, on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. And there you are. Uh, if you have an opportunity to put a tree in the garden, it's a far better way of doing your bit, isn't it? I mean, people talk about climate change. What are you going to do? Well, plant a tree. I mean, that's easy. That's simple. Uh, and it seems to make a lot more sense than buying an electric car, doesn't it? to drive around London in, which doesn't make any sense at all. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.